we're going to look at verses 5 through 10 today, okay? Now, before we begin, I would like to pray again. This one, this is kind of for me, so that I can settle down and, and, do, and do this right for you guys. So let's go ahead to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray for your help now as I open up your word and begin to teach what you have provided for me to share. And I pray that you would uh, use this weak vessel um, to, through your spirit so that it would be a time of edification and a time of encouragement and, um, and that we would be able to take what we learned today and move, move forward and use it in our lives day to day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So I don't remember exactly the date, but it hasn't been too long ago that I started 1 John. And we, we went through the introduction, followed by the first four verses. And what I want to do is I want to do a, a short, inter, uh, short review of that before we get into our text today. Okay. So regarding the introduction of this book, which is so important to know, by the way, um, so that you can really see the context of, of what's going on in the church when he's writing this letter. Now, if you remember, the, John is considered to be the author, but there's a little bit of a problem because in the book it doesn't say anywhere that he was the author of this book. But we, we take the fact that he was the author based on evidence that's provided by uh, ancient church writers, especially people that are very close to John. And uh, also you can look at the similarities of the Gospel of John to this letter for additional proof that he was the author. The letter was most likely written in Ephesus between 90 and 95 A.D. By, the, by, this, by this aged, at this point in time, apostle, John's older at this point, he, who was overseeing uh, many of the churches in the area that we call Turkey today. Okay? In this letter, he was addressing the false teaching that had infiltrated these churches. While this false teaching didn't have a name yet, it would later become known as Gnosticism. Okay? The teachers and followers of these beliefs were convinced that they had special knowledge. To simplify it a bit, they believed that matter was evil, that would be their flesh, and that the spirit was pure. Because of this belief, they felt that they could do whatever they wanted to do in the flesh, and it would not affect their spirit. Basically, they gave themselves a license to do whatever they wanted to do in the flesh and, know, and think that they would be fine. Any kind of sin that they wanted to do. They took much of this belief from Greek philosophy and Judaism and parts of Christian teaching. But when, they're faced, when they were faced with topics such as God, creation, Jesus, and sin, they had some very strange ideas in an effort to make these topics fit their beliefs. Okay. Can, can you see how this sort of happens even today with false teaching that we have out there? That, it, that it's being pulled from different areas to try to make it fit into the culture? They, first of all, these are some things that they believed. So they believed that God was unknowable. They also believed that he had no control over creation. They also believed that evil coexisted with God and that God had no control over it. They taught that spiritual beings were created out of God in secession. These spirits kept being created lower and lower until they reached earth where the spirit met flesh, 
which is where the lowest level of spirituality is found. That was their creation story. They did not think that Jesus was God, but that he was just a higher level of those spirits. They could not reconcile in their beliefs that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. They argued, how could Jesus, as a high-level and pure spiritual being, exist in the flesh, much less die in the flesh? They couldn't, they couldn't figure this out. It, meant, it seemed foolish to them. Does anybody remember a, a passage in Scripture that Paul wrote about the message being foolish to the Greeks? This is why it was foolish to them, so they tried to make up their own story to make it fit better. Now, the whole, the whole thing about pulling information from other religions to try to make it in and put it into Christianity to make it more fitting to way, the way that you believe raises a point that I didn't bring up last time. This is a little bit of new stuff. When we read our preconceived notions into Scripture, we can be at fault of trying to make Scripture conform to our thinking rather than allowing, spiritual, allowing Scripture to conform us. This is a good argument for expository teaching or the type of teaching that we do here at this church. As we go through Scripture, systematically, verse by verse, we face all of its counsel, first of all, and we have to deal with all of its challenges. When we come across passages that are hard to understand and have to work through them, we find that that hard work involved is fruitful work as we submit to the authority of God and His Word. We cannot afford to constantly teach or constantly talk about hobby horse topics, hobby horse sermons, or pick and choose scripture out of context to try to make, a, make our point. Scripture can't be treated like another piece of literature to be interpreted based on our felt needs and preconceived notions. This provides fertile ground when it's done. It provides fertile ground for false teaching especially when the word is combined with these worldly philosophies or religions in order to make it more culturally acceptable. And that's exactly what these false teachers were doing in, this, or in the early church. In fact, we have to come humbly to the Bible. It's the living word of God, which will challenge your felt needs, and sometimes it destroys your preconceived notions. That happened this morning to me a little bit. Seth asked, is worry or anxiety wrong? And I said, absolutely wrong. And it says that in the Bible. But he showed me in Scripture that sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's right when we're worried about God's will being done, the condition of the church. And then I understood it a little differently. It changed my preconceived notion there. Because I worry about you guys, oftentimes. So it made sense to me. Now, John fought against these false teachers by stating the truth as he, as an eyewitness, that's the important part, provided to discredit their dangerous teaching, which was taking hold in the churches. He saw this problem. Most of the New Testament is reactionary to things that are going on. So that's why he wrote the letter. And after looking at the introduction, we began to study verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1. Now, in verses 1 through 4, John communicates to the church that they can be certain of the person and work of Christ. Why did he start there? He starts there because that was the foundation that the false teachers were attacking. 
So he communicated to us four certainties of Jesus Christ. They are, Jesus is eternal, he's historical, he's proclaimed openly, he's relational, and it's, he is joyful. John had to start there. It was important that he started with Christ because that's the center of it all. Now, last time we spent, we spent time looking at each one of those certainties, uh, but I want to give you a, just a short summary of each one of those before we began today, okay? So first of all, Jesus is eternal. He has existed from eternity with no beginning, okay? He was in perfect fellowship with the Trinity. He was God, and his eternality is one of those characteristics that prove this fact. You might be saying, I know all this stuff, Dave. I've been in church most of my life. You gotta, you gotta know this stuff very well. It, found, it solidifies your faith, this kind, of foundational, this kind of foundational information. And it also allows you to know false teaching when you see it. That's, that's one important aspect. Now, secondly, Jesus was a real historical person. John stated that he heard Jesus speak. He saw him with his eyes. He touched Jesus with his hands and with his body. Remember the last supper, he was leaning against Jesus' breast. And finally, he states that he looked at Jesus, which was, in the, in the original language, conveyed the idea of perceiving what he did and looking at what, and, and listening and hearing what he said and, and examining it and making sure that it was good. Next, Jesus was, is proclaimed openly and is not secret knowledge. Jesus taught out in the open. He taught to those who believed. He taught to those who were curious. And he taught to those who hated him. It didn't matter his audience, but he taught out in the open. And after his earthly ministry, Jesus' disciples also taught openly about him as, as we do today. We teach openly. It's not secret knowledge. Next, Jesus is relational. He seeks to have fellowship with us. That blows my mind that the creator of the universe wants to have fellowship in koinonia with me. When we turn to the Lord for salvation, we become sons and daughters of God, part of the family. And finally, from last week, Jesus brings joy. Being saved brings joy because our joy is not based on any circumstances in our life, but on the everlasting rock, Jesus Christ. And I can't say more how important that is. Now, when this letter was communicated to the churches, I'm sure it was received differently by it, it, the listeners. Okay, For those that believed the false teaching, they could repent when faced with the truth, or they could reject it. For those who stood fast in their faith in Christ, they would be strengthened and encouraged because they're hearing all these other things being taught, and then they hear from John, an eyewitness of Jesus, and they hear that what they have believed in is true, and it strengthens them and fortifies them. The people's response to any message should never affect the pastor's communication of God's truth. 
He didn't care that he might offend people at all. And we don't either. All throughout history up until today, pastors must make it a point to communicate faithfully who Jesus is to the people that God's entrusted to them. But what does a firm understanding of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught provide for a believer? You know, here's a few things. It provides a firm foundation of faith in Jesus' eternality, that he is God, that he created all things and, and completed his redeeming work on the cross for us. We understand the problem of sin. This was a big problem then. They didn't understand it. And when we study how Jesus suffered and died for us, it leads to repentance and it leads to worship. We can understand his work and know his commandments so we know how to live and how to serve. We can in turn use this knowledge to communicate to others when we're sharing the gospel with them. We'll know what to say. We can worship him when we learned how he reconciled us to God and that we've been adopted as children. Importantly, we can resist false teaching because we know the truth. And let me tell you, not all false teaching is so clear and easy to see. But when we know the truth well, then it becomes that way. Finally, it brings joy because in an uncertain world, we can put our trust in him and have a hope of a future praising and serving him for eternity, which is a wonderful thought. So, as a pastor, how do we help those that we lead see false teachers so we can avoid the danger? And as, as good shepherds and pastors, the elders of the church, they must warn all of those that God's entrusted to them, as I said before, about false teachers and the false doctrine they teach. This is why often we'll bring it up, I'll bring it up, Darren will bring it up often about specific people we're not afraid to name that we should avoid. And this is why. Speaking to the Ephesian elders, Paul said the following. And you don't have to turn here uh, if you don't want to, but you can if you want. Acts 20, verses 28 to 31 says the following. And I am going to just read it from here. Keep watch over yourselves. Let me, let me set a background real quick. Uh, Paul is getting ready to leave to go to Jerusalem where he, would find, where he would be arrested and he would basically be in prison for the rest of his life. So he had been, he had been spending, he spent three years in Ephesus teaching every single day for hours and hours to everybody he could. He rented out a place to, to do this. So here he was getting ready to leave and he gathered all the elders of the church around him, and he was giving them some final instructions. And I think it's very, very um, interesting what instruction he gave them. What he, he could have said so many things, but he chose this, and we know why. He said, keep watch over yourselves. So first of all, keep watch over yourselves, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. For I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, people that you may have trusted, they will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. 
Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. He chose to instruct them to watch out for false teaching. And boy, don't we see it throughout the, as we study the New Testament, we see it left and right, that it was happening everywhere. Now, to be able to do this effectively, a pastor must know the truth and teach sound doctrine. Titus 1.9 says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is why we teach the way we teach today. And it is not a popular way of teaching, right? But we teach that because as we go through the word of God, we are imparting to you. And of course, we have a huge benefit ourselves as we study it. But we impart to you God's word. This is how he chose to communicate with us. So we do, that's why we focus on that. So, but one way a pastor can teach his flock using that shepherd metaphor to stay away from false teaching is to teach them tests that they can use to spot who is genuine and who is not. As we begin working into our text today, we can see that John lays down some earmarks of true believers and for those that are not. And of course, there are unbelievers who sit in churches everywhere. These tests are useful so that we can know who we need to share the gospel with, even when they claim to be Christians. They are also useful in the, in the church so that we can spot wolves and avoid being led into false teaching. Okay? So with that being said, let's read 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And that's where we'll stop today with those verses. So going back to verse 5, let's start there. We see that John is is providing or doing a direct attack on the false teaching that God and evil coexisted and that God had no power over it. See, John was just knew what they were being taught and he was systematically destroying it as he goes through this letter. Let's read verse 5 again. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So John is standing on his position of being an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry by making it clear that what he heard from Christ, he is in turn declaring openly. John is saying, this isn't secret knowledge. Rather, here's what I heard from Jesus' teaching, and I'm going to tell it to you now, openly. The message that John brings is that God is light. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that God reveals his holiness to show his glory and to expose man's sin. Light's purpose is to expose. When we turn on a light in the closet, it exposes the contents there. When we turn a flashlight on in the woods at night, it exposes obstacles and dangers. And he'll talk more about this as we go through the letter, about living and walking in the light. John 8, verse 12 says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Light captures the essence of God's nature and is foundational to the rest of this letter. God in his glory throughout Scripture is described as light. When, you all remember when Moses met God on Mount Sinai, what happened to his face? It glowed God's light. It reflected God's light and his glory. In this verse, Jesus gives another proof of his deity. He declared that he was the light of the world which the Jewish listener would clearly understand, he's saying that he's God. He's saying he's the Messiah. Jesus revealed this light when he showed his glory to Peter, James, and yes, John. John, the author of this very letter, was not only an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, but John was an eyewitness to Jesus' heavenly glory as well. Matthew 17, 2 says, There he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. God is the source of all wisdom, truth, knowledge, holiness, and happiness. I'll throw in their joy as well. I forgot to write that. Through his light on our hearts, he provides all those things to us, his children. How does he choose to impart these to us? The answer is through his word. And many people would disagree with that. But the answer is, how does he choose to give these things to us? It's through his word. Psalm, one, one, Psalm 119, verse 105. It's that long chapter in the middle of uh, Psalms. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Do you understand why I and Darren push so hard for you guys to study the Word of God? It's because of verses like this. It is a light for your path. It'd be like me sending you out into the deep jungle in Central America without any kind of way to illuminate yourself, to illuminate your path. In that same chapter, in verse 130, it says, the unfolding of your words, the expository nature, breaking it down and looking at it deeper, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Scripture also links light with virtue, moral conduct, and our responsibility to expose the deeds of darkness that we've been made aware of. Let's turn here. Let's turn to Ephesians 5 and look at verses 8 through 11. This is so important, so you might want to highlight or underline this verse. All right, let's go ahead and read that. 8, eight through 11. 
For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And here's a real important verse I want you guys to know. And find out what pleases the Lord. How do we find out what pleases the Lord? We study his word and we're diligent about it. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Then he goes on to talk more about that. We're to expose those. Don't be afraid to expose those deeds of darkness and that false teaching that's going on. Now, the light speaks to God's empowering activity as well. He empowers believers to walk in the light. Let's turn, now let's turn to John 12. And we're going to look at verses 44 through 46. Okay, 44 through 46. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. God is absolutely perfect in his truth and his holiness. Believers, we as believers, we fall short of that perfection, but we have a desire for heavenly truth and righteousness in our lives. In other words, with God's help, we can walk in the light. We don't do this alone. He helps us to do this. So moving on in that verse, what does it mean that there's no darkness at all in God? Well, it means simply there's no sin in him. There's no balance of good and evil as some false religions teach. You ever heard that yin and yang thing, you know, in the Far East? There's no balance of good and evil that has to be that way for things to go right. There's no evil in him. And this was an important truth for John to convey in order to counter the false teaching going on in the church that God coexisted eternally with evil and had no power over it. Think about that. If there was some sin in God, however small, how could we trust him? Is he able to, if he was able to lie, that means all his promises are voided. We may not even be saved. He might be playing some sick joke on us. If he contains sin, then why did Jesus have to die to pay for that debt? It just doesn't make any sense when you're faced with the truth. No, God is perfect and there is no darkness in him at all. Only light. And that light does more than just quicken dead sinners in salvation, but it empowers us in our sanctification and shows us how to follow him. When we're in fellowship with him, his light in our lives works in that sanctification process. Okay? Now, let's move on to the rest of the text today from there. In verses 6 through 10, 
John is contrasting a believer and a false believer. There is many different ways, not many, there's a few different ways you can look at this passage. And you have to pick one or it gets confusing because you can go down so many different paths. And they're all good paths. The way that I chose to, though, and the way I chose the first time I taught this as well, was to teach it this way, that we'll, we, we'll split up the verses uh, from in uh, 6, 8, and 10, which refer to a false believer, and we'll study that first. And then we'll go back and we'll look at verses 7 and 9, which refer to a believer. And that's the way that we'll, that's the way that we'll study them today, okay? Well, let's start first by looking at verses 6, 8, and 10, okay? Back in 1 John. Let me get back there myself. Okay, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, if we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, so we took those, those three verses. And in those three verses, we see that there are some facts about these false believers. They denied their sin in three ways. Their lives did not reflect who they claimed to be. John stated if we walk the talk, but don't walk the walk. No, we talk the talk, sorry. Let me start over there. If we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk, to say it another way, we are being deceptive to others and not living according to the truth. I think this is the one here that's it's so important. This is what happens to a lot of folks in the church that attend the churches, right? They claim to have fellowship with, with, with him. They, they claim to be in a relationship with Christ. They might even say that he's the Lord. He calls them, they call him the Lord. But if, if someone's a Lord, you follow them. And you follow them more than just what's in the building. You follow them all the time. And what he's saying here is that they claim to have fellowship with God, but their lives didn't reflect that. They continue to walk into the darkness. John states here that they were not living according to the truth. They're deceived, but more importantly, they deceive others. Sometimes they know exactly what they're doing. Sometimes they're just confused. They haven't been taught properly. We can't, we can't say that we get justification from Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and then that's it. We can just do whatever we want to do. Because at that point, we're doing nothing more than what the Gnostics taught. We're saying, we're saved inside, so I'm going to go to heaven, but I can do whatever I want to do in the flesh because of that. See how that sounds so familiar and so close to what the Gnostics taught? Next, they stated that they did not sin. This is more close to what was being taught there. John went on to say that if we claim we, have not, we do not have any sin or that sin is just a man-made code, we are deceiving ourselves and not living according to the truth. They also stated that they had never sinned. John wrote it as if to say, John wrote that if we say that we've never sinned, that we're actually calling Jesus a liar, 
since Jesus claimed that we all sin. Now, true believers, people that truly walk after the Lord and serve Him, are very aware of sin. We know that we have lived sinfully in the past, and we know that we still sin even after we've been saved. But the difference here is that our lives do not show a consistent pattern of sin. We do not continue to walk in darkness. John states here that if someone claims to follow Jesus, but their sinful life demonstrates that there's been no transformation, they are deceived. So in order to kind of understand this a little better, we're going to go right down to the very basics. What is sin? Well, the most common definition is to miss the mark. The mark meaning the righteous standard of God. Acts of disobedience, rebellion, and willful violation of God's commandments demonstrates sin's desire to replace God and to please itself. People justify their sins in many different ways, but they're, what they're actually doing is they create their own moral code. A code that is not as strict, one that they can live up to under their own power. Society agrees with this by claiming that people are basically good, and when given the right circumstances and the right opportunity, they'll do the right thing. But Scripture says something different. In Proverbs 29, 18, which we'll be studying maybe later this year, it says, and this is from the NLT, when people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. The problem is that when we be believe that people are basically good, it leads them to seek joy and happiness and contentment within themselves. If people believe they are good inside, notice this has some similarities with Gnosticism again. It gives them that false hope that whatever they think will happen when they die, whether it be nirvana, reincarnation, bliss, or even heaven, that their inner goodness and their good deeds will be enough to get them there. Truth is, they'll never be able to do what is required to enter the kingdom of God without Christ. No one can do this. It is impossible. When we are born, we are born with a sin nature. It started with Adam and carried all the way through to us today. So, that leads to the next question. What is the sin nature? What are we talking about when we say that? Well, if sinful acts are the steps, this is just one way of looking at it. If sinful acts are the steps. Sin nature is the journey taken in darkness. This is the nature that says, I put myself on the throne of my life. It is a rebellion against God and his kingdom. It is what Satan tempted Eve with when he said in Genesis 3, 5, referring to the fruit, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. See, notice that? You're going to be like God. So when the false teachers taught that they had some special revelation that informed them that God was just some force in the universe that coexisted with evil, it put sin on the throne 
with God in their minds. This is exactly what the sin nature wants. And further, it seeks to make God less than who he truly is. If they minimize God and consider sin as not really a problem, then they have no need for Jesus. They begin to believe that they're not accountable for their actions. Or that they don't, or they don't believe that their actions are actually wrong. They believe that they can rise up to whatever good place they think will meet them when they die on their own power and their own merit. I've heard so many times people say, well, when I, when I meet old St. Peter at the gate, he'll look at everything I've done well and he'll let me, he'll let me in, you know. And I got I to gotta tell them, St. Peter's not going to be meeting you at the gate when you, when you, when you, if you don't confess Christ and become saved. But the truth is, we do need Jesus. That's why we talk about him, especially in, this, in today's message. The redemption that he gives us through his sacrifice on the cross forgave our sinful deeds and our old sin nature. It's more than just forgiving the sins. It's, he, he destroyed that nature's hold on us. We are oppressed before we come to Christ by sin and that sin nature. We're slaves to it. And he broke those chains. Let's go to Ephesians again. And we're going to look at chapter 2. And this is a little bit longer one, but we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Give you all a minute to get there. And I do encourage you, this was a phenomenal study that we just did as a church a few months ago, I believe. Um, it's all up there on the website. This, this is a, a message that truly changed the lives of several people in this church, including my own, as we went through it. So I would encourage you to listen to it again. So let's go ahead and read that. And this is Paul talking to the church. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's referring to Satan there. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, before I continue on, there's only two types of children in this world. You've heard the lie that all people are, are children of God. That's not true. You're either children of God or you're children of Satan. Jesus stated that clearly to the Pharisees. Verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. When we're saved, we are raised from the dead, in other words, basically. He makes us alive. It is by grace that you've been saved. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. In Christ Jesus. And we don't deserve that. 
nothing we've done. To, he did this for us. In order, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might know the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And this is a verse that most people know. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The Gnostics taught that it was their special knowledge, their advancing in that knowledge that would allow them to rise up with the pure spirits. Had no room for Jesus in their theology. But when I think, as I was studying this, about the depths of this sin nature in man, all it does for me is it intensifies how I rejoice over being delivered from it. I hope you guys do too. John was facing false teaching in the church that denied sin. These teachings came from, like I said before, Greek philosophy, but especially that of dualism, which denied the reality of sin and evil. This philosophy taught that the spiritual was always good and the flesh was always bad. By creating this division, they reasoned they could do anything they wished because the spiritual realities were all that mattered. To them, the spirit was imprisoned in the body. And any sin or bad thing committed in the body did not affect the spirit, giving them, again, a license to sin. There's a, there's a current uh, cult, they call themselves a religion, that, that is so close to this, it's, it's really um, bizarre. And I know a lot about it because they, their world headquarters is where I'm from, and that's Scientology. They teach basically this same, the same theology, if you will. I won't get into that now because that would take too long. Look them up sometime. It's really bizarre. But uh, sadly, many, many, many people fall victim to that. But speaking of that inner spirit that they think is good, now Jesus talked about it, and he, he told us and taught us what the real condition of the spirit in us is. Let's turn to Mark. We're going to look in verse 7. I'm sorry, chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. And when you ever hear somebody say that people are basically good, think about this verse. Maybe even tell them about it. Because if people are basically good, it is going to be Mark 7, 20 through 23. Because if people are basically good, what are they going to be saved from? This is what we're saved from, starting in verse 20. He went on, Jesus went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. See, Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees, like John was dealing with the Gnostics. And the Pharisees focused on the outside. outside. It's a little bit different. They focused on trying to be holy from the outside, what, what Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Why? Because they look good on the outside, 
but inside was full of all kinds of detestable things. Okay? This is something to know that is so important about the condition of mankind. Now, Jesus destroys, I think, in this particular passage, that, that key belief that they had, the Gnostics had. He says that sin is what comes from within. And this goes directly against their belief that the Spirit is good and pure. But, but our sin is a complete package. We have it from the inside out. So to, to review these first three verses that we looked at, this is how John described the unbeliever in the church. They claimed to have a relationship with God, but their lives didn't reflect it. I mean, think about this. If you're a football player, an NFL football player, your life reflects what you claim to be. You know, if you're an accountant, your life declares what, what you do declares who you are. It's all around us. So it's, it's no different, honestly, about our faith in Christ. If we are children of light and we follow Jesus as Lord, our lives should reflect that. If I say that I'm an NFL player and I play for the Washington, now commanders, then you wouldn't believe me, would you? Because first of all, I don't look like a football player. Second of all, I've never been there. I don't have a playbook. I don't get paid by them. There's nothing in my life that says that I'm an NFL. I can claim it all I want, but it's not true. Okay? Next, they didn't live by the truth. Meaning they didn't live by the word of God. They didn't live by what they had at that time, which was the Old Testament and some of the letters that were written to them. Remember, he wrote this to the Ephesian church as one of the churches. That's where Paul spent three years teaching. These people had a good foundation and understanding. They not only claimed to be without sin, they claimed that they had never sinned, again, based on that understanding that they were getting taught by these false teachers. Many people claim to be believers, but salvation, folks, is not a, just, it's not a past event. Okay? Salvation and justification does happen in a point of time historically, that's true. But the proof of that salvation is in your present life. So salvation is not all there is to... Salvation, what I'm trying to say is salvation is not just a point in time in the past. The reality of your salvation lives with you every single day. The proof that it actually did happen, right? There's proof that I married Heather back in 1992. I have a ring. We live in the same house. We're just still together. That there's proof that I was married back then, and I can point to proof and evidences in my life that that's true. But a lot of people claim to be saved, but there's no evidence of that. We demonstrate that we belong to Christ based on the fruit that we bear as the Holy Spirit does his sanctification or sanctifying work in our hearts. If anybody claims to belong to Christ, but they live their lives, as John says, as if they're walking in darkness, then what they're saying is just not true. Do we say that just to point them out and, and uh, say bad things to them or have bad thoughts about them? Absolutely not. I have a lot of people in my family that believe that just because they walked forward and instead of prayer, they threw a stick in the fire, whatever people do, when they, when they say they're saved, their, ex their salvation experience, but there's nothing in their life that evidences 
You don't have to usually question if someone's a Christian or not. If you get to know them, you'll know if they're, if they're a true Christian or not. What do they talk about? What do they do? What do they spend their time doing? There's evidence there. By referring to walking in darkness, again, John is indicating that they're living a life of unbroken, constant sin, yet at the same time thinking that they're okay and that they're in fellowship with Christ. They, they might believe, you might, in other words, say, I know I'm going to heaven because I accepted him when I was a child. But there's no evidence there. That's a dangerous place to be. And you have to know that and talk to them. That's why we, that's why we know this, why we're learning this. So, but what does walking in darkness look like? These are questions that came to my mind as we went along. And let me read this to you. This is from Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. This is Paul describing what walking in the darkness looks like. He says, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Partying, basically. Idolatry. And you might be thinking, well, we don't have idolatry. We have more gods in this country than I think they had in the, in the ancient Jerusalem, quite honestly. There's a lot of idolatry that happens over humanism, over possessions, over people. There's lots of idolatry. And witchcraft, there's a lot of that too. Now those are big things, but then he moves into these things too. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions. Those are things I've seen happen in the church bodies that I've been part of. And envy, verse 21, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those, catch this, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If, you, if, you're, if, you have, if your life is an unbroken pattern of any of these things, then you are not going to go to heaven without repentance and without a change. When someone who claims to be a Christian has a life of consistent practice of those things, they are deceived. And like the verse said, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Without repentance and faith in Christ, sadly, they have a different inheritance. The inheritance of hell. This is why it's important for us to identify and share Christ with those who think that they're okay. We just can't go, well, they say they're okay, they're okay, and we'll just let them be. They may not be. They may be heading down that broad way thinking they're okay. So we have to keep that in mind. Now, moving on to verses 7 and 9, John here is speaking about a believer, okay? And notice the difference when you, when you read these things that, that in those other three verses, you see them them claiming things, like they had no sin, that they're good, they're all right, you know, everything's fine. And here, it's a little bit of a different story. Let's read verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And then let's look at verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So looking at verses 7 and 9, we can see these, these certain facts. If we walk in light, or in other words, we have a constant priority in our lives to honor God and live righteously, 
We have fellowship with each other. We have that koinonia, which is, I always laugh because that seems to come up and every single time I speak, it comes up. But it's so important. So we have fellowship with each other and with Jesus, who unites us all through the blood of his sacrifice. That is our common bond as believers. However, when we do commit sin, we confess it to God. We agree with him that we have sinned against God, that we sinned against him ultimately and repent of our actions. And we also have this certainty that he is faithful and has forgiven us and has purified us from all unrighteousness. Let's look at verse 7 again. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Okay. So in the first part of this verse, John speaks about walking in the light. Is this something that we can do under our own power? No, absolutely not. We, we, we do not, nor are we capable of walking on the light on our own. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do this as he works in our lives, sanctifying us. It's kind of like this. When you're walking in darkness, and you guys can understand this, if you're walking through the woods in darkness, what's going to happen? You're going to trip, you're going to fall, you're going to hurt yourself, you might get eaten by something that you don't see, could happen. Fall into a trap. But when we walk in the light, we can see those obstacles, and we can avoid those obstacles. And sometimes we do through our stubbornness or our lack of faith in God and our, our desire to please ourselves. We trip over the roots and we may fall into the dirt. And that's when we confess that. Walk is used throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, to describe the effect not of justification, which is your salvation, but of sanctification, which is that daily walk of the Christian life. And it's spirit-enabled. That's, that's the job of the Holy Spirit working in your life. In our Christian walks, we desire, I hope, that you all desire this, to be more and more like Jesus, which moves us into the next statement in the verse. As he is in the light. What does that mean that he is in the light? Well, again, it goes back to that very first verse, which says there is no darkness in him. There's no darkness in God. He is in the light. And in context here, it means that we walk in the light with him. We no longer walk in darkness alone. But through our salvation, we have fellowship with God and we have communion with him. And in this, we find great joy and peace as well as growth and maturity. You're not in this race because it is a race. Paul describes it in Philippians. We just looked at that last week. We are not alone in this. You're not alone. You don't have to figure it all out on your own. He is with us through this, all of this path, this walk that we have while we're here. Part of wanting 
to and looking forward to the time that we're in heaven. First, first, but not necessarily the most important thing that people think of is there's no more sin. But second of all, we get to be face to face with the one that we've believed in, but we've never seen, that has walked with us, but we've never actually physically touched. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives changes our behavior, our direction, and our priorities. That's why I say that whenever somebody has truly been saved, there's a transformation and you see a difference in their lives. Because the Holy Spirit comes in and resides and the Lord changes what we do. Those who walk in the light do so because the power of God has regenerated them. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, and this will be familiar with you to you, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. We have a new life in him. Believers will behave in a way that reflects the power of God's righteousness in them. The general pattern of their day-to-day actions and attitudes will be godlike. We want to do what he wants us to do. Again, going back to that verse where it says, find out what pleases God. Dig in the word and and know what it does. Those are things you want to do. Moving further into verse 7, though, we see that those walking in the light will experience fellowship with one another, which derives from their union of of the triune God, right? We, We, through our salvation, have unified with God, and that creates a fellowship with us all. We aren't lone ranger Christians. We're not secret agent Christians. We don't walk this life alone. We are together, and that's the most important thing. In Acts 2, verse 42, speaking about the early church in Jerusalem, this is what Luke describes what was happening. This is Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They lived their lives together. They had true fellowship over the teaching and over just living day to day. They had koinonia. They had a shared life together. And the cause of this fellowship, the catalyst, is the blood of Jesus. We have a common salvation. We serve the same God. This is why when you bump into somebody at the airport, or you see somebody on a plane, you bump into somebody at the grocery store who you don't know but is a believer, there's an instant connection. Now, as we enter into the last part of verse 7, we see that John writes about the blood of Christ purifying us from all sin. And this was very important for John to convey to the church in light of the false teaching that they were being exposed to. The false teachers were spreading ideas that the Christ spirit had left this man, Jesus. Again, they couldn't comprehend that a pure spirit would die on the cross. But that the spirit had left him prior to being crucified. So in essence, the false teachers were saying that Jesus was just a man who was crucified like thousands of others. And the last time I spoke, and I said this earlier today, there is great importance, critical importance, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man when he was crucified. Theologians call that the hypostatic union. 
He was fully God, fully man. Now, why is this important? I'm going to remind you again. If he is not fully God and not fully man when he died on the cross, he could not satisfy the sin debt. Not only is our sin forgiven when we come to faith in Jesus because of his sacrifice, which would be good enough, right? But God goes further and he gives us fellowship with him. We become his sons, he becomes his daughters. We fellowship, we have koinonia, we have a shared life with him. Again, we don't live life on our own. The next verse, verse 9, John, who understood that we do still sin, gives the church this instruction. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Part of sanctification is our confessing. But what does that mean? When we confess our sins, we are agreeing with God that whatever sin we have committed was against him ultimately. There are times, obviously, that we want to confess something to somebody else if we've harmed them or hurt them. But ultimately, all sin is against God. We repent of the behavior also. That's important. And we ask for sensitivity to those temptations again so that we can avoid falling into that trap. The Word of God teaches us what to do. We talked about that this morning. When we're tempted to have anxiety, as we talked about this morning, or tempted to sin, it does tell us what to do, how to handle that. Prayer, speaking to God, crying out to Him for help, that is the key. So we are forgiven already through our justification. So why does John say that when we confess, he will forgive us? In reality, in the translation, this is where that confusion comes from. The Greek word that John uses for forgive in this verse is actually a past tense. So in the original language, it would be in a past tense, showing that the forgiveness that we have received is a historical fact. As a believer, your sins, all of them, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven through the cross. That's justification. Justification, if you don't know, is, that, is a legal term. Okay, It is used to say that everything has been dismissed. You're justified. So when we confess, what we're doing is we're acknowledging our behavior and desire not to continue in it. The Greek word for confess that John uses means to say the same thing. That's what it means. It means to say the same thing. He might, we might say to agree with God. To confess is that's part of walking in the life. light. That's confession. We can clearly see the mess that we've made. We don't wish to continue doing those same things. It is because we know that we are forgiven is why we confess. We agree with God. This is wrong. I can't live like this anymore. As we go through the sanctification process, we are made more and more aware of sin in which we then again agree with God as we confess them and repent of them, okay? I remember asking my mom a long time ago, boy, it must be great because she'd been a Christian for a long time. And when you've been a Christian a long time, you must really not be struggling much with sin. <laughs> and she said, let me tell you something, son. She says, as you study God's word more and more and you walk closer and closer to him, 
you actually realize the depth of your sin. This is why when you look at, look at uh, Paul and the way he described himself at the um, end of his life, he says, I am the worst. Paul, who we all really hold to high regard, I, was the, I am the worst sinner of anybody. The closer you walk to that light, what is it doing? It's doing its job. It's exposing that sin in our lives, right? Those who walk in the darkness have no idea how dirty they are. But we do. That's another earmark of somebody who's a true believer, is they understand their sin. God is perfect, and even though we're forgiven of our sins, we're not perfect, and we still sin. However, through the Spirit's work in our lives, we confess, we repent, and we work. And yes, it's real work. It's not a passive activity to walk in the light. So a quick review before we wrap up today. We actually got done a little sooner than I thought, which is good. John is systematically addressing the false teaching that's going on in the church in these verses that we're talking about. He's helping the church to understand what sin is and how is that reflected in someone's life. How do they handle sin? Do they claim not to have it? Do they harbor it and live a life of it? Or are they confessing it and understanding how important it is not to live that way? He refuted the claim that God and evil coexisted. This is at the beginning of what we talked about today. By stating that God is light and there is no darkness in him. Sin has no place in God. He refutes the claim that people can do whatever they want to do in the flesh and still be pure in the spirit by pointing out that this is a deception which dishonors Jesus by making him out to be a liar when he said that our sin comes from the inside out, as you guys remember that passage we, we went through. John also gave more examples to encourage the reader who was holding fast to their faith. He wrote to, that those who walk in the light have fellowship together through our common salvation. I help you, you help me. We all help each other and we live a life together. We also, he also instructed us to confess our sins as we agree with the Lord that we have fallen short and to remember that he is faithful and he has forgiven us of those things. Sometimes when I think of what I've done, it's a gut-wrenching thought to think that Christ suffered as he did for that sin that I just did. You know, that, that he paid for my selfishness and what I did to please my own flesh in such a horrific way. And he did it because he loves me and he would do it if I was the only person that has, was on this earth. Those things prick your heart and so you can see the reality of those things. One of the most important responsibilities of leadership in the church is to instruct the body through the word of God. John took this seriously. We do here too. This is why we do what we do. This is why I want you guys to be men and women of prayer. 
I want you to be students of God's word. I want you to go beyond just being the casual reader or the casual attender. Because I know what it can do. Because I was a casual attender for many, many years. We want to be sure that everyone here is very aware of the truth so that false teaching stands out as clearly, clearly wrong. And we're not sucked into things like there's so many things out there that you can get pulled into. Things that, that make us feel good because they solve our felt needs. We have to be really careful about that. Why do we go to church? Why do we attend? What are you doing here this morning? Well, you're here to worship God. You're going to get something from sitting and in, in, in hearing the word of God taught. But you don't come here to get something. You're coming here to give something. This is a house of worship. There's nothing special about this building, obviously, but we love it. We're here to give worship to God. And it's only through his grace and his love for us that we get so much from doing that. Yes, John communicated truth here for the most important thing. And that's that it, the sh so that the sheep, which are all of us, can see the wolf and have a better understanding of their loving shepherd. That was the shepherd's role, was to watch out for the wolves that would come in and tear up the flock. And whenever the sheep heard their shepherd talk, they would come to him for safety. And shepherds in the old days would lay across the, op the, only, op place, the only opening to the pen for protection. A shepherd's role, which is my role and Darren's role, is to protect the flock. And this is what we want to do. We want you to be able to see false teaching. We want to make sure that when you hear stuff like Stephen Furtick, being taught. Joel Osteen, he's kind of easier. And others that are out there today that teach falsely that you go, wait, that doesn't sound right. That you know the word of God well enough to do that. And that you can warn your friends. I've been able to warn several friends off of him and other, and other false teachers. So, it is to be a student of God's word, to be very cognizant of these things. That is what we wanted to teach today. And with that being said, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. And we have so much joy in our salvation. We also have so much joy that you've empowered people like John and Paul and many, many others to write the, your words in the Bible. And we know that you, ex that you have revealed yourself through your word. And I pray that all of us here would take that very seriously. That we would know the words so that we can see false teaching. That we can see people that are in trouble because they think they're okay when they're not. And so we can be true salt in this world. And I pray, Lord, as we go for forth, that each day would be a day of study of your word, that, that all of us would take time to be praying, to be studying, because that's the important things. Those are the important things that we need to do.
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.